Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Devastation. My name is Stefan Frost. Today, I am joined with Keppa Awe. Did I say that right? No. 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 Damn it. Keppa, Keppa Awe. Awe. It's like a question. Awe? <laughs> Do you have, does everybody have that inflection at the end now when they say your name? Yes. Okay. Just confused. I'm going to try my best to not screw that up in the future, but no promises. Um, okay. Okay. So anyway, welcome to the show, sir. Um, why don't you tell us what you do, uh, and we'll start getting into the the thick of things. Sure, yeah. Um, I I own a company called Rocket Cat Games. We make iOS games, and soon we're making PC games. And I do all the business stuff and design stuff for it. Very cool. Um, so I wanted to talk about your start in the industry. Um, how did you get into making games uh, to begin with? So like um, six or seven years ago now, I used to be a pediatric nurse. I was working night shifts, and on night shift, there's a lot of uh, a lot of dead time. So during some of that boring time, I just kind of decided to make a games company. Like you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And, uh, I was on a chat channel for, um, do you remember the old game Asheron's Call? Absolutely. Yeah, the MMO. Yeah, the, the what was it, mid-90s, one of the early uh, MMOs, mm-hmm. early 3D MMOs. And I'm in a chat channel for it still, like, God, 15 years later, more now. Mm. And I got a couple of people in that channel to start the company with me. So, okay. When you, when you did this, has this always been a thing for you? Or you're always like, oh, man, I want to make games, but I'm just going to do this pediatric nurse thing first. Yeah, well, that's the, the second thing's way safer. <laughs> really? You think that the, oh, the pediatric thing is, yeah. In terms of making money, yeah. Sure, absolutely. Um, I thought you meant like, as in, like, safe for your life. Um, no. Yeah. Um, okay, so you started this company, and uh, did you have a game in mind when you did this, or was it just something that you're like, I've always wanted to do it, so let's just do it, guys, and we'll think of something when we do it? Oh, yeah, yeah, we started the company because we eventually want to make, like, this gigantic dream game project. Okay. Which we're nowhere near getting to. <laughs> Those are usually oh. long long dreams and take yeah maybe we'll get it by like year 10 or something right but this see i think you're doing something smart which is you're start you're starting small and working your way up because there's a lot of people that that start on that big dream game and then they never finish it because it's really hard oh yeah definitely um okay so you started that out with a couple of buddies um how many games has rocket cat put out now I want to say it's either six or seven. I'd have to like count on my fingers or uh, open up the website. Nice. Yeah, where did that? I'm surprised you don't know off the top of your head. <laughs> I mean, well, I, would... I don't. I don't think about it constantly. Right. Well, I I would hope you would, sir. Um, no, it's seven games. Seven games. Okay, cool. So the first one was what? It's Hook Champ. That was October 2009. Okay, so that was on the iOS, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the iOS, the iOS, the iPhones, the what? What do you what do you kids call it these days? Uh, I, I think it's the iPhones. Yeah, the iPhones. Okay, uh, so you put out Hook Champ, and um, 
when you were designing that and you were starting, where did that come from? Oh, the game hook champ? Yeah. Yeah, so we wanted to make um, a really difficult like precision platformer for the tiny iPhones. And that totally doesn't work because there's no buttons or anything on those devices. Right. So we figured out a way to do it. Um, it's just a one-touch thing. And you swing around on grappling hooks, and it's like a reverse uh, parabolic arc. So you're swinging along the ceilings. Mm-hmm. And that way you can do all the timing for the really difficult jumps by just you know holding and letting go one of the sides of the screen. So you get a lot of uh, control finesse without needing uh, any buttons or anything. Now, where did this stem from initially? Was this like, was this when you guys were talking about stuff? Was it like, I've got this idea and you were kind of driving it from there? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We we went through some ideas and, well, it was mostly me since I do this design stuff. No, no one else cares to, I guess. Right. Same with the business stuff. No one else cares to. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I had a bunch of ideas and we went with the one that seemed like the best one that we didn't abandon quickly. Okay. Now, did you have a few before then, or is that that is number one? And you, you that put is that number the one? number one that we admit to. We had a few before that. Okay, that's uh, that's interesting. So, what what stopped you from putting those games out? Oh, um, the ones before Hookjump. Yeah, we did put them out, and then we took them down. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, we're, was it just like okay, the reception isn't quite there? Well, they made we'll about they made about fifty dollars, and they were awful. Okay. Well, the second one wasn't bad. The first one was awful. Okay, but it's it's a learning experience, right? And mm-hmm. you, you get better at it over time, so you went through that. The biggest lesson we learned is that no one will ever remember your failures as long as you take it down right away. Okay, so but if it, <laughs> if it rots on the App Store for years, people will remember, apparently. Maybe. I, I don't Maybe. think people care either way, really. Yeah, I think, you. I th- what's the quote? You're as good as your last effort or, you know, your last work. So mm-hmm. if you keep putting out stuff and it keeps getting better, I think that's what people remember. Right, yeah. Um, okay, so Hook Champs number one. You guys did a sequel to that, right? Yeah, Super Quick Hook. That was um, a year later, I think in June. Now, was that the second game, or was there a game in between that? No, that was the second game, right to it. Okay. Now It was a pretty fast follow-up. It was almost the same game, except we, we knew how to draw, or the artists knew how to draw better at that point. For We figured a bunch of stuff out, and we pretty much wanted another chance to redo our first game, so that's what we did. Okay. Now, what were the lessons taken from the first one to the second one? Oh God, lots of them. Um, the first one was the first one was really difficult because there was also time pressure because there's always a monster chasing you. Right. And we wanted to take that out. That was um, a big one because a lot of people got turned off by that. So mm. it's it's still as difficult, but now you can take your time, even though it'll kill your score. Right. Another one was a really simple one where we did the game at the wrong resolution in pixel art so we had to rescale it and yeah so the game looked really crappy because we had to zoom out so you could see anything so we fixed that in the second one and then other than that it's like just a bunch of different design things or things we wanted to try differently like we uh, changed how the the arc of the grappling hook worked they ended up being really different games because we just changed so much to see which worked the best and was there a, a noticeable difference in player reaction and ratings and stuff like that yeah well not in ratings and the player reaction was it was more popular but i don't think it had anything to do with the quality i'm not even sure which of those two games is better really <laughs> really there's not one that you're like oh, man we killed it in the in the second one because we, we, we killed it we killed it was it. way more successful but i i don't know if the quality was better it was just different okay fair enough the art was a lot better well that's good uh so okay game three if you can recall it 
what it was. Oh, Hook Worlds. That was uh, December, October. It was really shortly after Super Quick Hook. Okay. So um, what what is the length of time that you're taking in developing these games typically? Um, let's see. So Hook Champ was uh, one or two years working. No, it was about two years, but we were working part-time just on the weekends because we all had full-time jobs. Oh, okay. Uh, Super Quick Hook was about a year, like I said. Um, Hook Worlds was less than, definitely less than a year, um, maybe half a year. So are you full-time doing this now? Is this the game dev is what you're doing to, to make your, your ends meet? Oh, yeah, ever since the second game. After awesome. the first game, we worked part-time. Oh, uh, our later games, though, started taking years to make. Um, Mage Gauntlet was probably two years overall because we worked on it at the same time as Hook Worlds. And then... Wayward Souls was two, three years, maybe, which wow. was a really long one. Yeah. Now, on those, uh, I actually wanted to ask you something because this is something uh, I always talk to people about in production. When you're focusing on two projects, do you think it kind of diverts attention from one, and then as a result, you're you're kind of not getting the let's get this thing in and done and then ship the next thing and focus on that? Or do you prefer working on two at once? Cause you're like, I get refreshed cause I can go work on a new project. I, I recently I was trying to work on like two or three at once and it was working out well for a while, but then like a delay happened with one of them and then a delay happened with another one of them. And because of those delays, I was working on each project, like during dead spots in one project where a lot of design wasn't needed, mm-hmm. but because of the delays, it ended up being where like, all of them had to be worked on at the same time, which was pretty bad. Yeah, that's Just, that's got to be brutal because you're... Yeah. Now, and, on these, and I'm sorry to interrupt, um, are there publishers that you're doing this stuff with or is it you guys are just, you're making them and you're publishing these things? It's self-published. Okay. So the deadlines are really kind of internal for you guys. Um, does yeah, it, except for Death Row to Canada, which was a uh, Kickstarter-imposed deadlines. Ah, okay. Now, uh working on those deadlines is it is it kind of nerve-wracking and different compared to the other stuff cuz the other stuff is okay we'll get this out when we can get it out but the other one is oh man we we said to people hey we're going to get these things done by this time oh yeah i don't think i'm going to do kickstarter again interesting okay so is it um, cuz this is this is something that um did you ever watch the the double fine documentary i'm not all the way through i saw little parts of it yeah it's kind of interesting because there's that um there's a different kind of pressure because they're used to the pressure of publishers who say like, I want the game to do this and I want the game to do that. And this one is different because you have people that have invested money into you and they have these expectations. So you're trying to meet those and it's almost more stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like a self-imposed stress though, because the actual Kickstarter backers are really forgiving and mellow about it. Oh, that's good. Um, so with the Kickstarter, uh, this is something we talk about all the time on the show because there's there's been a lot of kickstarting games. Um, what's the thing? What's the sort of advice that you would have to people that are thinking about doing a Kickstarter for their game? Oh, man, I don't know. I didn't do too great with mine, so I'd probably say like take whatever deadline you expect for your game and then like add two years to it. <laughs> that's my personal advice. I th- I think that's safe. Actually, <laughs> I think that's a probably a good thing in general I, I don't think anybody is ever accurate in thinking how things are going to end up in games i think there's like a curse of kickstarter too yeah there's like a, l- a bunch of kickstarters that came out at the same time or were done about the same time as i was is were like also delayed by two or three years like i'm um, off the top of my head delvers drop i think 
Uh, well, so I think, and, and this is the the difficult part, I think, too. You're you're saying that your backers are patient, which is good. Um, but game development is never a smooth process. It, it's never accurate, right? Or if it is accurate, yeah. it's because they have thousands of people working, like Assassin's Creed or, or Call of Duty or Madden, right? And even that's not very accurate. Right. Even those, they have like different teams working on it at different times and different titles so that they can stagger them and it's a giant pain and it's yeah then you get like assassin's creed unity coming out where it's like mm-hmm. buggy as hell but at least it came out right uh so you have the at least those those people being patient but um if you <laughs> what is it about not doing it again is it that there's those deadlines that you need to meet and it's stressful as a result of that and people are impatient or is it like what about it makes you it's think it's a like, lot of unnecessary self-imposed stress but the big thing is that if you're just doing a project by yourself and it is not it's not going well you can just kill it right if you want to but if you've already promised that it's coming out to a bunch of people you can't really kill it or even change it too much which is a huge hamstringing of yourself too so your the concern would be i want to make this huge change to the game i don't want it to be about zombies anymore i want it to be about like, i kill raccoons yeah right then yeah something like that right okay that's interesting um so something i i wanted to talk about because you're the progression of of the games that you're making seems to be that they get more ambitious kind of as they go on Mm -hmm. um one of the things that i found interesting is you guys did kind of like action rpgs on iphones um and typically the iphone is not the best at having controls that are precise or you know, good for action RPG stuff. So what did you guys do that was kind of different to make sure that that stuff felt good? So we started with Mage Gauntlet in uh, 2011. And what we did was um, we did that left. You slide your thumb to the left or right or up and down, and then you hold it like that and you just move in that direction. And around that time, everyone was just doing like on-screen joysticks, which doesn't work out too well. Right. So we did our, like, you don't even need to see the screen version, which you can get used to. All the footage I took for Wayward Souls and Mage Gauntlet were done on the device so I couldn't cheat. And I don't know, after a couple of years of playing it, I got really used to that control scheme. And uh, for the actual uh, attacks for Mage Gauntlet, we limited ourselves to um, two little on-screen buttons. One was attack and the other one was um, the uh, dash button. Mm -hmm. And that's all we needed that you could open up a pause menu to bring up extra stuff like uh, inventory items that you could use from the pause menu mm-hmm. for wayward souls. We got rid of the buttons completely. So it's just like you and your two thumbs on the screen and you don't even need to see the screen at all if you don't want to, or you don't need to see your thumbs rather. And how we managed that was in wayward souls. It's with your right thumb, you tap the screen to attack, you hold it down and then let go to do your power attack. And you can swipe on, uh, up or down or it's it's more like um down left or upright to do two different special abilities okay now um were there any influences from other iphone games that you guys kind of took and learned lessons from of what to do or what not to do i think there were some other games that did um the completely invisible sticks before and we learned from that and tweaked it a lot until we got something that we really liked for an action rpg Mm -hmm. and man there's there's probably a lot of influences for little control things too. Uh, trying to remember. So the, the one that I, I kind of found to be pretty good was uh, infinity blade did a pretty good job with their kind of combat stuff to make it reactive and quick and 
and also kind of focus on making sure that the gameplay is um, best served by the device, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was a, a swipe system too, yeah. Right. Um, so, okay, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about with, with iPhone stuff was systems and coming up with addicting systems that make people want to continue to play. Um, this is a typical thing in RPGs. It's, you know, whether it's gear or whether it's player power or, you know, whatever it is. Um, how did you guys design addicting systems in, in an iPhone game? Oh, we looked at flash games uh, and, and we just did a, you know, the bullshit progression system in flash games. Like there's a store and you spend coins to get little items and abilities. Right. We, we pretty much just did that for hook champ and onwards. I think uh, for wayward souls, I tried to get away from it a little bit and also mage gauntlet, but all the other ones have that thing where you get coins and then you spend it to get stuff. Right. And everyone uses it and it's really effective. Yeah, I mean, it's there's something about collecting stuff and then being able to see it, I think, in advance and kind of go like, ooh, I want that thing because it does the thing. And mm-hmm. then can... Or even just like a you know, multiple playthrough progression system. Like um, the first Binding of Isaac had just barely that system right. where you just, you know, you don't like different characters and different stuff that they could get, but there wasn't a lot there. And it still really worked, I think. Yeah, I think... Uh... Uh, something that you guys also did, I think, in some of your games was randomness in levels. Mm-hmm. How important do you think that is to to games like this? If it's, I really like the combination of random levels and permanent death. That's a really, really good system that people are really starting to explore after Spelunky, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably what really kicked it off. And yeah, they they just work so well together. Now, uh, are you a Dark Souls fan? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's I, I've noticed that too in in side scrollers. Even there's been a lot more exploration of that stuff. Um, there was like Salt and something that just came out that was like kind of a Souls like game that that has that sort of. Yeah, that was a. I didn't know it just came out, but I, I played it a little bit, and that was definitely um, Dark Souls inspired. Right, and I, I to your point, I think there's this weird like you know games. I think have their ebb and flow of what's acceptable or not, and permadeath seems to be something that has come back. In the past, I don't know, a couple of years. Um, so you were saying that you feel that that is kind of mission critical. Do you feel that it turns off some audience members as a result? Because it's it's kind of punishing. It does. It does. We uh, we tried to make like a light version of it though, so we got a lot of people uh, converting over from a more casual mindset. What we did was all the big areas are split into their own different sections. So if you die, you end up at the beginning of that section. And then we combine that with like, um, you know, the whole find coins to upgrade your abilities thing. So you're constantly getting a little bit of progress, even though we refuse to really make the um, the progression matter too much. Right. Now, some of these uh, some of these games are free to play, correct? Uh, one is Punch Quest. Okay. Now, uh, what was the difference in designing the game when you were taking into account the monetary model for your game? Oh, not a lot. That's why Punch Quest didn't make too much money in the beginning. Because <laughs> you didn't uh, design it to be punishing to make people pay or something like that? You could get everything in a couple hours of play. <laughs> <laughs> so mistake number one was that. But uh, later on, we took the same game and just kind of increased the prices of everything in the store by eight times. Wow. And it was still the quickest to progress free-to-play game on the market ever, possibly. 
but we started making like 10 times more money. Interesting. I'm not um, a huge fan of the free-to-play design, by the way. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. Like, I, I think if you look at, um, typically speaking, if you look at some of the, the iPhone free-to-play stuff, it's kind of like the Farmville rip-offs, right, where you... You have to wait eight hours and then, but if you pay money, you can do it now or, you know, get yeah, it's completely brutal to progress. Right. And so, um, maybe you just kind of answer this question, but, um, if you're trying to make money, but making the game kind of more inaccessible is how you make more money. Is that a decision that you're willing to make or is it kind of like, no, we we care about fun. That's what matters first. And who cares if we don't make money? We definitely cared more about fun and punch quest definitely didn't make money in the beginning <laughs> so there's probably a mix between the two maybe right plus there's there's different systems now like um you know there's the the ad model and make your game well with the ad model you have to make your characters die a lot i suppose the the flappy bird model oh, right around um, there's the there's the more collectible uh cosmetic model like crossy road or um landsliders yeah, landsliders. But um, the problem with that is you need tons and tons and tons of downloads. I guess you need tons of downloads for any free-to-play game, but the cosmetic ones convert especially low, I think. Right. Um, so something else I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, your games have uh, have different art aesthetics and moods and styles. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you guys kind of determine what those are going to look like and how they're going to feel? So the early games was pretty much the artist figuring out how to make video game art. Before he was uh, making video game art, he was delivering pizzas. Nice. I think it starts somewhere. So, <laughs> uh, so if he, so when he was doing this stuff, did he was he just did he have a penchant for art, and you just happened to know him on the Astron's Call forums, or, or yeah, that chat? was it exactly the Astron's Call chat. Wow. Okay, so he came in. He's like, I want to do art, and you're like, All right, you get to do art. And so he I was all fine. <laughs> you were super enthused. Whatever. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Fine. Um, <laughs> okay. So he starts making the art. He starts learning a bit. Now is the progression in his art based off of him learning more or is it because he wanted to establish different moods? Like, you know, if punch quest is different than, you know, anything else. Punch quest is the exception because we had something specifically in mind because we wanted to have, um, way more, higher resolution than we normally do and kind of river city ransom ish inspired art. All right. But all the others is pretty much his progression in his own personal style. Okay. That's cool. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about as well has been, what are the biggest challenges you think for developing for a mobile title? That's a big ass question. Yeah. Yeah. The, biggest challenges i guess there's always the risk that you'll put your game out and it'll just completely fail but i guess that's uh pretty much every platform oh yeah everybody faces that one um yeah mobiles especially like chart heavy though and featuring heavy if you're not featured or not featured well you're probably not going to sell a lot of copies so that's pretty daunting so how do you how do you differentiate yourself? Because I, I forgot what the the metric is for how many apps are put on the store in a day, but I think it's something ridiculous. It's it's like a million billion or something. I think it's a million billion. That sounds very accurate to me. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot. Um, and so how do you differentiate yourself from every other app that gets put on the store that might be you know poopy versus yours, which is awesome. Yeah, not a lot of people make 
the same stuff we do, especially like there's action RPGs on the market, but not a lot are have the same design considerations or you know the the good random generation. It's mostly, I think, just that we have a fan base. It's a small fan base, but it's a fan base that'll you know buy our stuff if it's similar to previous stuff, hmm. similarish. Okay. Gotcha. And other than that, it's pretty much just Apple featuring. Nice. Okay. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about Death Road to Canada and Dad by the Sword. So we'll, we'll talk about Death Road first. Um, you've been providing a lot of updates on that stuff. Um, is that because it's the Kickstarter and you want to make sure that you're being as transparent as possible? Or is that just because that's a development philosophy that you'd like to have with your fan base? It's At this point, it's mostly just because we're almost done with it. So we got a lot of stuff to show. Okay. Now, we're at the point where we can actually show the game off. Well, there's something I, I also wanted to discuss because there's a lot of games that kind of go back and forth between these and specifically with indies, and that's transparency versus mystique. Um, there's a, I, I, was, I almost got a job working for The Offspring um, and uh, as their content manager for their website. And I was talking to their manager, and they, they said, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I would love to do like a reality show thing with these guys and see what they're really like. And he's like, yeah, but nobody really wants to know how the sausage is made. And nobody, <laughs> nobody really wants to see that those guys go to the grocery store and buy toilet paper, right? They just want to know that they're a badass band that plays huge shows and they're rock stars, and that's the mystique that they have. Um, similarly with games, do you feel that it's better to be transparent and talk with your fans and say like, this is what we're doing and this is how the sausage is made. Or is it, you know, like we'll have all this stuff and look at how much magic we made because we're magicians. Yeah. We, we don't have the, the level of PR necessary to do the mystique thing. Cause I think for that to work, you need to be famous, right? Well, not necessarily. It could be like, you know, you put out the game and you're like, wow, this game was awesome. I don't know how they did it, but it was amazeballs. <laughs> right. But you know, the transparency thing is, you know, this is how we're doing it. This is how you, set up a, a character to attack and this is what scripting is and this is what sound effects are and blah, blah, blah. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We do that. Yeah. So, uh, then I guess you answer the question effectively, which is <laughs> transparency. It seems to be more uh, of that variety. I don't know if it's like a philosophical thing with us. It's just, it's, it's handy content to put out there that people can, you know, look at and go, huh, they're making a game. Now, uh, there's also something I, you guys had like a live action, trailer or story thing for both dad by the sword and uh, death road to canada oh yeah we have like six more of those coming by the way which is awesome um what kind of inspired you to do that i wanted to try it we we had um wayward souls was really successful so i kind of wanted to take risk for a year or two with you know all the extra money we had just to see if the trailers would be profitable and other stuff like that same with like working on multiple games at once. I usually work on one, but I wanted to see what would happen if I worked on multiple mm -hmm. and pretty much just experimentation. And you're still sane and everything's going okay? More or less. Right. You're as sane as you were. You, maybe a little less. I don't think I'd do the multiple projects thing again. I think I'll start weaning myself off of that. And we'll still have to see with all the trailers. Like The trailers are cool and everything, but... The big question is if anyone will give a shit, well, like at all. Yeah, I guess it just depends on on how they turn out, right? Like if they're if there's something awesome, maybe they'll they'll go to it. But maybe I, I, I thought it was cool because there was this kind of you know 
one-to-one -one with the characters in the game was showing that stuff off. So, um, yeah, so I guess that one's just a work in progress. We'll see how it turns out, and then right, yeah. maybe we'll do more. I think it was inspired by the the Cappy articles about, you know, them doing side stuff for their games, like videos and so on. Mm -hmm. Though the, the unstated challenge is, even if you have all this stuff, like, you need to figure out or luck into having people give a shit about it. Right. Or about your games in general, so on and so forth. <laughs> My new things. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things I also wanted to talk about was uh, the sort of influences with this game. Because this game is different from some of the other stuff that you guys have done before. Um, what kind of inspired you to make uh, sort of like a zombie-themed game? We wanted to make a slow zombie game, which I don't think really has been done right yet. Except, um, what was the one in the mall? Dead Rising? Yeah, mm -hmm. Dead Rising. Yeah. The problem with Dead Rising was it did slow zombies, but the zombies were just like a complete joke. The danger in that game came from the human bosses. Right. Where the zombies were just like something you parkour on. Yeah. Which is fun, but it's not like the, the movie zombies where there's, they're really dumb and slow, but there's huge amounts of them and they're relentless. Right. So we wanted to do that. And we also wanted to do like a road trip sort of game. Where you keep going to these big locations, but you're never in them for too long. You're always moving on. Mm -hmm. So it was those two things that we combined together where we wanted to make the game. Now in this one, uh, is there permadeath? Yes. Okay. So uh, what is the, kind of the loop effectively in, in this kind of game? Is it uh, just go out, collect as much stuff as you can, improve your character, don't die? Pretty much. It's, you start with two characters, and you can uh, make characters so you can make your friends and family. You start going on the road. You can um, go into a location that the, the interactive fiction tells you about, or you can decide to drive on so you're effectively re-rolling your location. And you're trying to get food, um, ammunition, uh, gas, trying to keep your car going, trying to uh, get new skills for your characters and perks and so on, trying to get new characters... Now, is, Stuff like that. is this one of the more ambitious systems that you guys have set up? Because that sounds like oh, a lot yeah, of different Oh, yeah, definitely. Ones. There's all that. And then there's also like all the interactive fiction stuff. And there's like personality stats that unlock new things that you can do in all the interactive fiction events. And you can recruit dogs. And if you recruit dogs, then then they get stuff in the interactive fiction events. And it goes odd from there. So when you were designing that stuff, um, how did you kind of start with you know, okay, I need to do a system where I can talk to people and then add them to the party. And like, what was, what was the influence and, and impetus for first designing something like that? Choose your own adventure books pretty much and in interactive fiction games. And, uh, the actual basis of it isn't too complex. It's like you've played faster than light, right? FTL. Uh, I have not, but I know the deal. Okay, where they, they have the little pop-up choose your adventure thingers and then it's one, two, three, four, and you pick one. Right. It starts that way, but then we just like took that and made it way the hell more complex. Gotcha. Um, okay, so that, okay. So you have the, the eating thing as well. Is that mm -hmm. um, when you don't eat, I'm assuming that your health is just going down over time? No. No. What's, what's the deal when you don't get food? The game doesn't last long enough for anyone to starve, but um, if there's no food, then everyone gets, starts getting more and more pissed off. And oh, if their morale bottoms out, they start arguing with each other or quitting the group or taking the... If uh, someone has low loyalty, which is a hidden stat, 
that you can reveal sometimes, but it's hard to reveal. Oh, I forgot to mention that all the stats are hidden until you reveal them. How do you reveal but, uh, them? I mostly like proofs of it. Like if someone has a temper tantrum, you know that they have a bad temper and that pops up on the screen, revealing their temper stats, stuff like that. Okay. So really so, they have to do the thing and then it will reveal that it exists. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if, if someone gets pissed off at you and they have low loyalty, they might like wait until everyone's asleep and steal the car. Nice. <laughs> okay. So is there a dick move stat? Yes. It's, it's loyalty and there's like different combinations of being a dick. There's a uh, being like a homicidal asshole guy, which is low loyalty and also a really bad temper. And that lets you rob people and do other things um, in rare events. And then there's, um, there's like a low perception, low attitude person that thinks he's really cool, but he's not. And I think in the game it's called grading, but we never actually say what it is. It's just like you get the option to tell people to say it, not spray it or cool it. Nice. And or it's always the worst possible option. Or calm down. That always works. Oh, well, cool it. Cool that's, it. That's the more annoying way of saying calm down. That's true. Cool it. <laughs> cool it, bud. Is, is, that's, uh, that's bad news. You never, nice. never ever has anybody actually cooled it after that. No. It, uh, the thing with cool it, though, is if you do it five times in a row, the first four times will just be like the worst possible option. But the fifth time will be a miracle where they actually do cool it and see the error of their ways. <laughs> oh, man. I can tell this is fiction. Um, <laughs> that's cool. Uh, okay. So, Dad by the Sword. I love that title. It's a good title. It's a great title. Um, where the hell did this concept come from? Because it's kind of crazy. It's It came partially from me wanting to make a good sword fighting game. And then it came partially from me wanting to make a really bad sword fighting game. Mm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like a surgeon simulator mixed in with uh, a sword fighting game. All right. Now, this is this is always an interesting experience. We've had the guys on from Chivalry. They also did a, a sword fighting game. Mm-hmm. Um, melee in first person is is sometimes challenging or maybe no one ever gets it right except for chivalry yeah like chivalry <laughs> i i agree with you actually there's uh, there's been few, there's a giant motorcycle driving by my house i apologize mm-hmm. um oh, that guy must be cool he's you know he's cool and he's got sunglasses on at night i can tell you both things are happening um that's not funny man you can get in a bad accident that way on a motorcycle you could you could do that but you wouldn't be as cool <laughs> true <laughs> so priorities uh anyway um so melee first person chivalry did it right uh yeah i have like two complaints about chivalry i guess well so yeah i mean look nobody's perfect but uh i think that one is the most addicting like i've always wanted to have that experience right where i'm like yay i'm I'm sword fighting like braveheart or whatever Mm -hmm. just Um, like braveheart yeah just I just want people's heads flying off and, you know, being chopped into and, or what's that ironclad? Did you see that movie? No. Oh man. If you're making a sword fighting game. I, I did see Braveheart though. Well, Braveheart, Braveheart's good, <laughs> but I mean, they're like chopping down clavicles into like your sternum. In oh, nice. Life. You can do that in dead by the sword. See, I'm already sold. Um, okay. So, how do you make the improvements that you're talking about here? And, and what are the challenges that you have to deal with in a first person melee combat game? The biggest challenge is special to us because we're simultaneously trying to make a really good sword fighting game and a really bad sword fighting game. One that's intentionally hard to control. Have you, have you seen the footage of it where like 
the sword's just shaking around in little circles and doing nothing, and then it goes limp. Yes, kind of like it's the the floppy hot dog sword. Yeah, yeah. That, that's if you really screw up your swordery, and it's pretty easy to screw up, even though we keep we keep backing away from this precipice. Like recently, we put it on a a live stream of someone playing it, and the first guy playing it did really well, but then he had to go away to like interview someone for uh, it's like a you know the YouTube stuff. Right. And they're really high budget shows now, but the second guy that was playing just could not get it at all, and it was like kind of excruciating to watch, <laughs> where he couldn't swig. So, so we keep dialing that back a little bit because we want people to be able to play it. But, but yeah, but you still want them to have. I, floppy I gotta sword. have the floppy sword. Right, that's uh, the problem. So yeah, I noticed that you also had uh, kind of a kick in there as well when I was mm-hmm. watching the footage. Um, what uh, what is kind of different aside from having the floppy sword, which is a must? Uh, what else is kind of different from from the melee stuff that you guys want to get in there? Oh, what do you mean the different from the melee stuff we want to get in there? Like different from other melee games, right? So we've <laughs> oh oh sure. Yeah. So the big thing is it's a little bit inspired by the game Die by the Sword, where you have one for one control over your sword settings. So like you click the mouse button and then you move the mouse and then you're moving your sword arm. Ah, so you actually have to manually yeah. swing. So that's the big deal of the game. And that's paired with your sword directions matter a lot because the enemies are wearing armor. And if you slice it in an armor thing, you'll chop it off. Okay. So it's like a really precise sword fighting game while okay. also being intentionally hard to control. <laughs> so so we keep edging away for the, the last part. Right. So my, my design dream for this game is that people can get good at it quickly and not have to tutorial it too much, if at all. But for the first little bit, they'll suck and get floppy swords all the time and crap. Right. Now, is this PvP as well, or is this just against AI enemies? Oh, it's single player. It's randomly generated levels and, you know, permanent death. Okay. So is is the progression kind of similar to what we were talking about before? Like, you, you kill dudes, you get some gold, you buy another sword, that sort of thing? No gold. Took it out. Oh, interesting. What did you go to instead? Uh, we're going to go for unlockable classes. Originally, well, just until recently, we were going to do no unlockables. But then I remembered what happens to the the only game that I didn't have unlockables in. And that was like our worst selling game. And I think it just might be, it's so easy to do, to just do like a half-assed progression system. Right. <laughs> and it works so well. Well, and do you think that's because uh, players just like the feeling of, well, I was kind of not as good earlier and now instantly i'm better yeah from unlocking the next thing definitely so Uh, we're doing it the binding we're just ripping off binding of isaac and making it so that you unlock new dads okay (laughs) so you get tell me about the dads because i'm now i'm interested well Um, the first dad's the power dad obviously if you've seen the trailer he starts with the kick and you know perks that give him a little bit more strength and health but he's pretty much just the basic dad okay and then you have the finesse dad that has, you know, a dagger. And he's really quick and, you know, witty. Mm-hmm. He's really, and you have cyber dad, which is, you know, part dad, part machine. And he has like an advanced targeting system. So he's a pretty good tutorial class, I think. I think we'll unlock him like after your first death or something. Okay. So you can see like all his slices before you slice. So you don't have to worry so much about it. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. There's, there's Wolver dad. And that's us like, you know, getting sued by Marvel because you have Wolverine claws as a dad. Right. He keeps saying bub, but in a dad voice. 
I'm not sure if Wolverine's a dad. I don't, I don't read a lot of comics. Uh, I think he is. Okay. Well, yeah. you get to play as Wolverine from the famous Marvel comics. Right. I could go on like this for like eight more dads if you want. Dude, I, I'm I'm enthralled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is fascinating. So you unlock the different dads and mm-hmm. they have different uh, abilities that you kind of go through from there. Yeah. And that's so, it. And most of the abilities are shared too, like just stuff you can find in the game. It's it's total bullshit. It's just to have, to have a progression system. It's just something. It's something. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's it's kind of weird. Like there are. Um, I remember developing, um, working on Wildstar, and there was this. You know, kill ten whatever. Right. It's the uh, yeah, classic and everything in MMO. But um, people were like, "Oh man, I, I hate that I have to kill ten things." And then we put it to a bar, and it was just fill the bar. And instantly people were like, oh, my God, this feels so much better. And it's like, dude, you're, <laughs> you're doing the same thing. Like, you're literally just killing 10 people. And it's, it's really funny. Like, the best AI in a game is to have the AI be really simple, but then lie about it. The the Halo lesson, if you've ever read that article. Be simple, but lie about it. Go yeah. Explain this to me. I'm fascinated. If you make your AI too complex, it seems buggy or arbitrary. So you just it's, make uh, it. There's a big article about it. You want to make it really simple. To have really obvious and also to have really obvious tells. Right. And then you you let players fill in the blanks. So they'll like construct this story about why this thing did this thing. And it'll make the AI seem a lot better than it actually is. Interesting. And if you make it too good, then it has the opposite effect. Where people rationalize how they work through bugs or poor balancing. Well, so yeah, I was talking about the Souls games earlier. Um, Bloodborne is like this great example of really these each of these creatures probably do two to three attacks. And that's it. Like there's, it's really just about memorizing what they do and then feeling smart about, oh, I roll it this time. I don't get hit. Yay for me. Right. Yeah. Um, so is, is that something, so you're taking that into consideration when you're doing your AI design. What about difficulty for you guys? Does it ramp over time? Is it like, it's always going to be a certain amount of difficulty and it's just about progression and making your way through it. Like how does difficulty work for you guys? For Dead by the Sword, it's always the same amount of difficulty, and it ramps up as you keep going through. But there's no like cross-game ramp-up or anything. There's okay. no progression ramp-up. And for Dead by the Sword, it's a pretty short game, and we just don't care if no one ever beats it. Right. Now- oh, I think like once you figure out the controls, you should have a fighting chance. And for, uh, you wanna, for Death Road, it's just a constant balancing act because we want it to be difficult, but we also want it to be like a game that young children could play with like their parent or something in two player mode. So it can't be too difficult. It also has like that kind of cutesy aesthetic for a zombie game. So it should probably not be ultra difficult either. So it's kind of like Oregon trail and walking dead. Yeah. Except that's Oregon trail with a O R G A ed. See, there we go. It's uh, it's it definitely inspired by Oregon and Oregon Trail, more mm-hmm. more so the original Oregon Trail that I had to play in school. Right. But it's the same theme, but a really really different implementation. If you've seen the footage, right? Um, we have like the action adventure stuff, and instead of um the really simple choices, there's a really big interactive fiction system. Very cool. Um. So uh, something I, I wanted to talk to you that's that's not as related to to the games that you're making. What are the big influences in your game development career from from just playing games? Usually, the thing that inspires me the most is playing a game that like was almost good. 
So I get a lot more out of playing those games. Like some some game that could have been good but has like a big flaw in it. Right. So yeah, that's pretty much my go-to for playing other games to figure out game design. Interesting. Now, um, now what are your favorite games of all time? Uh, it's Dark Souls, Dark Souls Two, Doom, Doom mods, Quake mods. Mm-hmm. Not I'm skipping Quake by a, a Ted. Okay. Fair well, enough. Quake's really good if you get the rocket launcher. So Quake with the rocket launcher and Quake mods. Uh, I really like um, all the old. I have to call them traditional roguelikes now because roguelike now means a different thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, NetHack. I played that for years and years. Right now, I'm playing. I'm still playing Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup, though I delete it when it irritates me a lot, and then I get it again when they update it because they're going to update it for 20 years, just like NetHack. Right. Uh, it's, I like the the new roguelike games, like the Spelunkies and onwards. I really like games with you know procedural content, uh, permanent death. Really like that combination. Uh, some of those off the top of my head. Um, crap, I can, I'm really bad with titles. I really liked Eldritch and Delver. Though I'm not sure if Delver is done yet. Those are big ones. Those are. Uh, have you played either of those? Uh, negative. No, I'm not. They are 3D uh, first-person shooter, procedurally generated games. Oh, interesting. That could be fun. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really done a really good uh, one in that genre of randomly generated first-person shooter yet. Yeah, no. Uh, no. I might be forgetting one. I kind of want to say there is one that I'm just completely blanking out on, but not sure. Yeah, I don't think... I've seen it in side-scrollers and, you know, where it's easier to have tile sets that you can just kind of swap yeah. in and out and stuff. Tower of Guns is really good. That's probably the one I was forgetting. Hmm. That wasn't like really the the big experience that I was thinking of. It's more of an arena fighter, I guess. Right. But that was really good. Yeah, I mean, you've seen like those other survival wave games as well, which kind of kind of have that influence in them as well. Like oh, uh, which ones? Like so, like horde mode and like Gears of War, for example. Like it would oh be yeah. Like, oh, here's these dudes now. Oh my god, you know, and you have to fight that wave or whatever. I guess if you count that though, you can count like Left for Dead as procedurally generated, and it is. But I mean, procedurally generated levels. Yeah, levels. The whole shebang. Yeah, it's a little, little bit different. Um, okay, well, cool. Uh, so this is uh, a, a kind of a big one. What advice do you have for people that were not working in the game industry and want to get working into the game industry and start their own thing like you did? Save up money first. That's what I did. So you just, over time, you're like, okay, I'm going to save a bunch of cash then focus on this and hopefully something good comes out of it so I can have another paycheck to keep doing this. Yeah, definitely. Cause even when we did it, it was just a huge gamble. When anyone does it, it's a huge gamble. And then you say, you know, it was a, it was going to be a success, but you say that in hindsight. Right. I mean, you don't really know. No, there's, there's this huge luck element to whatever you do. And like, you can fail just as easily as you can succeed. So my advice is to save up some money. Okay. So, Beyond that, is there something that people should learn? You were saying that um, you know you do the design on this stuff. Did you learn in like Unity or Game Maker or you know some other game development software? No, we always just used our own engines. It's oh, not really? something I recommend, but yeah, the the programmer Jeremy I always programmed the engines and then tools where I had like a level editor, and then I could just uh, download the levels onto the device and play test them over and over and over again. I'm not really sure what 
advice to give on design specifically because for me design is mostly just about nudging things until they feel right and i think that's the case with a lot of people too yeah i don't i don't know that there's really a science behind it other than does it feel good because i feel like a lot of the games that come out that you were talking about earlier that had the potential for something mm-hmm. are games that either maybe people didn't play enough on their own like i feel like that's actually a big thing if you get so busy that you can't play your own game enough that you're just like oh, i just got to get this out or there's a deadline or yeah you know. if you're not playing it over and over again you're really not nudging things you're just kind of <laughs> just adding content numbers out of spreadsheet and right. then movie god yeah, I think that the, that was a lesson that I learned at, at one of the companies that I worked at was like, yeah, we can finish a game on time, but is it going to be good? Pro- probably not. There's you know? a lot of stuff with that too, though. It's like really complicated because it's your perception of what's good unless you get a lot of play testing in from other people. Right. So how do you guys do that a lot? Do you like once you've like, okay, I've nudged this enough for now, I'm going to test it with some people and see what happens and then react accordingly. We always do that a little bit, but not much. I've been a little bit better since we've been uh, moving to PC development because it's a lot easier with all the streaming sites now. I just have like a some random person play the game and I watch them. And it's perfect because then they don't get the pressure of being seen by uh, someone, you know, over their shoulder. Right. You're not like breathing yeah. behind them heavily. Right. And then all my stuff's right there so I can make the changes instantly. Like go fix a typo or fix an imbalance or a bug. It's pretty cool. Now, what are your thoughts on stuff like early access? Um, I don't like it personally, but it seems to work for some people. I think it's one of those things like maybe it's like Kickstarter where you really kind of want to have a big following before you get into it. Because if you go into it just without anyone knowing about you, then you're just another shitty early access game in people's perception. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think... I. I think I've said this before on the show, but a lot of times, uh, it, I think Darkest Dungeon is a great example of an early access game. Where did you say Darkest Dungeon or Dankest Dungeon? Yes. No, I said Dankest. I said Dankest Dungeon. No, Darkest okay. Dungeon. Is is there is a it, Dankest? Is it Darkest? Dungeon? Yeah, it's Darkest. God, I've been calling it Dankest Dungeon this entire time, and I know those people. That's really, really embarrassing. Right now, you are sitting on a gold mine. If you make, I just a... feel like an asshole now. No, no, dude, you you've discovered a weed version of the game that you can sell <laughs> to people that love weed. So you have nice. Dankest so, Dungeon. So like Darkest Dungeon, except you can get high. Yeah, it's like you get too high. Weed. You you're like you start to get too paranoid. And you're like, oh man, we can't go forward. And you, you're like, so it replaces stuck. the torch mechanic, right? It's yeah. a new kind of torch. But you, yeah, you're you're too torched on weed, <laughs> so you're just you're too baked. It's like that's that's the pop up. Too I like baked, it. and yeah. I can just rip off the game completely and change one thing too. And they'll never know. They'll never yeah. know. They won't know. They'll it's never know. Enough. It's not cloning if you bring in new ideas to it. Make sure you have an announcer as well. That's like. Oh no, bro! You're totally I. <laughs> I like this. I like this a lot. You're you're welcome, dude. This is all yours. If you want it, stay. I'm not. I'm not gonna sue. You just make millions. You're welcome. Okay, I will. Um. So, so what was the question? The, the point before we got into making probably the next best game ever made was um that they did a good job of early access and that they were feature complete but not content complete. So, right. Yeah. They basically said, okay, these are all the things that you can do in the game. It has all the art. It feels like it's a a game, Um, but there's a lot of stuff that we need to add to it to make it 
more awesome, like more buildings and more characters and more progression systems and whatever. So, um, yeah, I think they did it right. There are other games that come out and they're just literally half finished and they're, they're garbage and they they just want to make money so that they can stay alive or whatever. So that's, that's, I think the kind of downside for me, but teach zone. Right. Plus they, they were in, like you said, they were in the right spot to do it, but they were also had that big fan base from uh, the Kickstarter too. So that helped. Yes. In Uh, terms of um, public perception, I mean. Yeah. Um, Yeah. If you go back actually and listen to the episode that we did with them, uh, there's a really interesting explanation of how they progressed through that Kickstarter campaign and how they got a fan base and all that fun stuff. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah, I was uh, with uh, with their really early uh, showing off the game. I Skyped in. You, You Skyped in to the game to play it? Oh, when they were doing their like early show off the game for Kickstarter streams, I remember oh, that. Oh, okay, yeah, they uh, they're good stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so anyway, back to your stuff. Um, I'm gonna ask uh, one last question, and I think we're gonna call it an interview, good sir. All right. Um, if you could have kind of one thing that you could go back and change about your development process, and this is another one of those big ass questions. What do you think it would be? My development process or business stuff, specifically design? It could be all the things, my man. Whatever you think. Oh, man. Let's see. Going through my mind and trying to see what I should self-censor or not. I don't think I'd change a lot of my design process. I'm pretty happy with it. I probably wouldn't do the Kickstarter, (laughs) so that's number one. Do your fans know that this is a, this is a thing? That you're I like, oh, I'll tell them, I guess. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll get through this Kickstarter, obviously, because we're almost done with it. But it was just pretty harsh, and it was our own fault too. We we essentially did the Valve thing where we had a game, and then we got rid of the game to make a better game. <laughs> right. Like how Half Life One used to be just a completely different thing, and then no, they remade it once or twice. Let's so just that, do it that's again. what happened to Death Road. Yeah, why why not? like the cursed kickstarter where we thought there were all these expectations too so it had to be really good so yeah that that led led to the two-year delay business wise i think i really try to um socialize a lot more with uh, other developers it seems like that's more important than anything else and why do you say that oh people that are well connected with other developers have a big business advantage i think Mm. You get exceptions, like it's either you take the social route or you hope for a viral hit, and there's those two things. So whatever I talk about uh, the business side of game development, I say like get get in with your local community. Definitely. And is there anything that you want uh, people listening to check out? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, just rocketcatgames.com to see our old App Store stuff. Uh, DeathRoadToCanada.com and dadbythesword.com and our twitter it's just rocket cat games i post a lot of stuff to that perfect all right well sir i thank you for your time and thank you guys for checking out the show if you want to hear more episodes you can go to itunes and download the show for free or you can go to patreon.com backslash stephen frost hear all the episodes there and or donate to the patreon if you feel so inclined um otherwise thanks again guys adios